Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor, and for the last eight years, I've done more than 360 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris Effects products for more than 20 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today on Art of the Cut, Bob Dusay, ACE, discusses his work on Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. I've spoken with Bob before. His credits are lengthy and include The Mummy, Van Helsing, Jack and the Giant Slayer, and Godzilla. He has worked with Ryan Johnson since Looper, which was released in 2012, also on Johnson's Star Wars, The Last Jedi, and their previous film, Knives Out. They've also worked together on a TV series, Poker Face, on Peacock TV. Before I hop into my discussion with Bob, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for macOS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com slash cut to begin your free no-limits 14-day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen. And for me... Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, head on over to borisfx.com and check out the Boris FX suite, which includes Sapphire, Continuum, Mocha Pro, Silhouette, and Optics, all in a low-cost monthly or annual subscription. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go to either borisfx.com slash artofthecut, all one word, or borisfx.com slash AOTC. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmark. And now, Bob Doucet, ACE on Glass Onion, a Knives Out Mystery. Let's talk about this film. Thank you so much for joining me, Bob. It's a great to talk oh, it's to you. Great to, it's, yeah, it's great to see you and speak to you as well. It's a pleasure. So one of the questions I had was that Ryan, before Looper, which was, I think, your first film with him, he was his own editor. Talk to me about working with a guy that is used to editing for himself. Yeah, as you accurately point out, I was the first guy who Ryan had to deal with as a full-time editor. And uh, he and I actually talked about this recently because I've never spoken to him in any length. I could have guessed just based on you know knowing him really well and everything, uh, how he felt about it. But I asked him if it was difficult and I thought it might have been, and it was to start out because you know it's a detail-oriented task and a lot of directors are micromanagers and editors are micromanagers. And so to have that sort of collision, I think it is really surprising to me that he said that he had found it difficult to start. Ultimately, I wasn't particularly worried about it because I thought that we would be able to find a way that made him comfortable. And, and in fact, we were, and it got there actually pretty quickly. I think it was harder for him when we were shooting mm. on location because I think he kind of dreaded sometimes coming over and looking at cut material because it was just so foreign to him to even have that happen, right? Because if he was cutting his own movies, he was doing it once they were shot. And so I, I don't think he really liked doing that very much. And then we got into screening the movie. I mean, soon after that, honestly, 
it became much easier for him when he realized that this could be beneficial to him to have somebody else that's got a, a different point of view at times. But still, you know, you're there to service the vision of the director in the movie. And I think we, we got into a really good groove by the end of the movie. And then what's really great is, you know, we've worked together for over a decade now. We've done four movies. He's got a, a new television series that starts on Peacock after the first of the year called Poker Face. And I did a couple of episodes that he directed for that. And that adds up to about a feature film's worth of stuff. So, you know, we, we've done sort of the equivalent of five feature films. What's happened over the years, of course, is not only do, you know, we've gotten to know each other much better personally, which is obviously beneficial ultimately because you, you know each other really well, but also professionally too, because we found a really great way to work together. I consider it my job to understand what the director is looking for, not necessarily even just specifically for the movie we're working on, but just generally what their point of view is and how editing works and what it means to their film. And also just stylistically and their point of view on storytelling. If you start off with that in mind, you have to sort of push your own ego aside and your own particulars aside and hone in on really enhancing and delivering on the vision that the director has. Ryan and I align very well just naturally, but I think over time it's just gotten better and better because you can get down into the, the tiniest of things. There are times when I go, yeah, he's not going to like this. And I do it anyway because, I mean, I won't do it because I know that there's zero chance that he's going to like it, but I might instinctively feel like this is not going to be something that he's necessarily going to go for. I think everybody has to do that because that's really bringing more to it. And sometimes the way it goes over is like, this is great. And sometimes it's like, I really didn't see it this way. Here's how I saw it. And you adjust to that. But that thing that you showed is still something the director's seen. And sometimes we go back to it. I think time is really extraordinary when you're collaborating with somebody, because I just think you are able to get really in sync and understand not only what I can bring to it, but also me understanding what the goal is. Ryan has a very strong point of view as a director. And what I mean by strong point of view is not that he's not a good collaborator. Everybody he works with, you know, he wants the big contribution, but he knows the story he's trying to tell and he knows thematically what he's trying to get across and he knows the style in which he's working very clearly. He's not unsure, which any editor will tell you is your ideal director. Absolutely. I'm interested in that point that you made that, you know, after four movies, you kind of know what he wants, but you don't always want to deliver that necessarily. And you could say, I know this is the way he wants it cut, but that's not providing input. That's not providing your editorial feedback by just giving him what you think he wants. Absolutely. And the thing is, any director, Ryan in particular, if he says to me, I don't like this, this is not how I saw it. And I don't think it's as good as how I saw it. There's no loss in that. If every time I did something like this, he always rejected it. I'm sure that I wouldn't keep trying it, right? But the thing is, one of the things about editing, your taste and your judgment are the whole deal. It doesn't mean that you don't make adjustments in your own point of view, because again, for me, it's extremely clear. There are two people I'm working for on the movie. One is the director and the other one is the movie. If you deliver a great movie, everybody's going to be happy. And so you have to stay in service of that. So as long as that's your North Star, and as long as that's the thing that you always have in your mind, because I have an ego, I want to be right about things. I mean, it's like anybody else. And I think it's important to have an ego, and just in general, because you have to have something to bring to it. But you have to push that into the background when it gets in the way, because again, the movie is the thing. And so you just really have to service that. You sort of find this way of providing service, providing enhancement, doing something for the movie. It's no different than the screenplay. And then you cast actors. The actors are are bringing an interpretation, but it all has to be within the vision of the director. Is there an advantage or even a disadvantage to Ryan having written this 
directors don't always write their own material. My experience has been typical to what you'd think it would be because you'd think that they'd be super precious with their stuff. And my experience has been they're not. And uh, the fact that they created it from the ground up, I think is a, an enormous advantage because they're really bringing something to life. To cut something that you wrote, it would seem to be more difficult, but at least in the writer-directors I've worked with, it's not the case. I think there's only advantage. I don't think there's any disadvantage. The fact that you have the writer there, when you have an idea, hey, you know what we need? We need this sort of thing. You know, there they are to deliver the words or the idea to fix it, which is really great. Were you on location? And what's the advantage of being on location for you if you were? Yeah, we shot the movie in Greece and we did stage work in Serbia in Belgrade. So the whole movie was made in Europe. And yes, I was there. I was saying to somebody the other day, he was asking, oh my God, it must have been unbelievable to be in Greece. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it kind of was unbelievable because I, I created this dark, tiny cutting room in Los Angeles for a dark, tiny cutting room in Greece. <laughs> this is an occupational hazard. A windowless room in one city for the windowless room in the other. Exactly. And then we went to a small windowless room in Belgrade. <laughs> um, I, I'm only uh, half kidding there because, you know, obviously it was very enjoyable being in Greece and also, frankly, in Belgrade, which was a lovely city and a great place to work. With Ryan, to, to a certain degree, because of the relationship of editing to writing, it's something that he really understands the power of and the necessity and what we can do. And especially over the years, as we've become great collaborators, I think the value of us being around is particularly potent to he and Rom because I personally find the production part of the movie far and away the most difficult part of my task. And sometimes I find it oppressively difficult. I don't find my job naturally easy. And when we're shooting, it's even a bit worse for me because the first cut is really important to me because I want to be endlessly thorough with the material. Because once I've done that, I feel now we're going to shape this in a direction that is serving the end goal of a great movie, serving the point of view of the director. I want to make sure that I've left no stone unturned. So I spend a lot of time with the material early on. Now there's a real goal to service the production in a couple of ways so the department heads can see how things are progressing and where we have trouble. And even more importantly, for Ryan to see if there's any adjustments that need to be made, whether it's in how a character is working or if there are any storytelling problems or that sort of thing. The other issue is that practically speaking, it is a much cheaper, more efficient, etc. If you are missing something, if you're missing a close-up, if you have a little problem that you need an additional shot to make something work, you need some insert that people weren't thinking about and it's not on the schedule, it's much easier and better to get those things before you leave. And we really endeavor to have nothing to do by the time we finish shooting. And this is of particular importance to both Ryan and Rom, his producer. We've done really well in the four movies that we've done together where there's been very, very little additional photography. Looper had one day, I don't think Knives Out or Glass Onion had a full day of anything. I think we did a couple of inserts in the office. And even Last Jedi was only, I think, three or four days of additional photography. So we've done really well with that. And I think that's to the benefit of the production because to start the whole machine again is really, really expensive. So there's the whole litany of things that you benefit from being on location. And it's hard to beat that face-to-face -face interaction. It's easy to come by the cutting room. It's easy if the art director needs to come by or the cameraman needs to come mm -hmm. by to see something. And I did not love working, I should say, during COVID as if it's over. But working from home, I really didn't enjoy all the remote work. And I think that you get a lot of benefit from face-to-face -face type interactions, especially with the director. How close were you to actually being on set? It varies on the movie because The Last Jedi is like mainly a studio movie. There are locations, obviously. On Glass Onion, I was rarely on the set, but most of that had to do with COVID. If you're not necessary to be on the set, 
or if it's not of great value, you had to avoid it uh, when we were dealing with that. So I was actually on the set very little on Glass Onion. Ryan came by uh, editorial uh, at Rap and probably came by three days a week, something along those lines. So we had we had really good interaction. We'd spend a few hours together and go through the week's work and see how we were doing. I just talked to Michael Kahn and Sarah Brochar on Fablemans, and they were literally a trailer next to Steven Spielberg's trailer. So every setup, he would get a setup started and go watch dailies. It's a really interesting way of working. You're able to do that. You can't be in any closer proximity than that, right? You can have the most immediate interaction possible. The thing about doing that is I've actually done that on a couple of movies for very particular reasons. It can get to the absurd, though, because then you could go, hey, send one of the assistants over to the set and get some stuff off of what would have been video tap. And you can plug that in. Sure, you could sit right on the floor with everyone and take the output off the camera recorders and cut there. That part seems to be taking a little bit too extreme to me. There's a fun little introduction where all the characters get this little puzzle box yes. that they have to yeah. solve. How did you keep that moving while also showing the complexity to the puzzle? I love that sequence you're talking about. It's, it's basically the very opening of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got this puzzle box in it, which is really organic to a murder mystery. And all of the characters, these very vivid, wonderful characters are introduced. For anyone who's seen the movie, it has the excitement of a split screen structure, which is really fun because it's what something cinema can do, right? You can be in multiple locations in a simultaneous time. I mean, there aren't really many things that could do that. I guess you could probably do that on stage. It's a bit of an old-timey technique in a way. It's not really all that popular in current films, but it's extremely effective and really fun. I think you could take any finished movie, put it in front of a preview audience and say, how was the pace of the movie? Was it just right? Slow in parts? And I think that you'd hear slow parts and then if you ask the audience where they would say the beginning. It's just the nature of the first act sometimes that you're kind of getting it going and the movie hasn't done all the things that the movie's going to do. And both Knives Out and Glass Onion were no exception to that. And one of the things that particularly in Glass Onion, the characters just leap off the screen because they're so well designed by Ryan. So you start with a great deal of interest, which is endlessly helpful for keeping the audience engaged. Plus you insert the structure of the puzzle box and the split screens and the fact that there's a lot of comedy in that. And I think the audience gives us a bit of a break as we give them a lot of information and set up characters that they're going to join on this big adventure. It's still a challenge to keep it moving fast enough because the audience just inherently wants to get on with the movie. And in the case of Glass Onion, you know if you're seeing a murder mystery, you need to get on to somebody being murdered. (laughs) Because of that, we were aware that we really needed to keep it moving. And that's just a matter of making choices with character. The tiniest things are meaningful to the characters and the audience ultimately. And it's also a little bit fragile. You have to be very careful and you have to be very disciplined. As you're aware of pace, you also have to be aware that you're giving the audience all the things that they're going to need to take with them on this journey. The split screen added a lot of complications and making all of that work. But I think the end result is really satisfying and really a lot of fun. They, from recollection, were pretty complex. It wasn't just a line down the middle of the screen. They moved. They that is split correct. in funny ways. How did you do that as an editor? It is complicated because you're using multiple layers of things and you have to get everything in sync and make sure that all of those things are working well. You point out that the boxes move around and essentially they work as wipes that leave multiple characters on the screen. So I would work all that out on the app and I'd work out all the timing of how these things would work. And I did it very crudely. I'm working with this incredible uh, visual effect editor Vaughn Bean and Vaughn was on the show. I turned the material over to him with all of the timings and how it worked. And he just went to town and really developed these really fun shapes. I mean, I'll say there were a couple of things that I knew what Ryan was expecting, but a lot of the things we just went off and Vaughn just did his thing. I was thinking to myself when I showed Ryan 
the movie the first time. I felt I'd get a lot of feedback on all of that, all of the timings, the way the boxes worked, the shapes and all that. And he just loved it, which was great. I mean, a real testament to Bond's beautiful work. The timings and how everything moved in and out, I determined in an extremely crude way, but then it was polished into that 90% of the way those boxes move is first take on it because he just nailed a really great idea. I'm sure he did multiple iterations, but what I saw. So it's pretty great. It's important to surround yourself with the best people you possibly can because they have a way of making you look good. I always figure as many people as I can have in my cutting room who want my job, that's what I want. I want as many people who just want to chop my head off and take that job because they're inspired to do work to get them to where they want to go. Servicing the story in the movie while they're doing it. Of course, you need to be servicing that at all times because anything that falls out of those lines tends to get discarded. One of the other complex things that I felt as an editor when I was watching the film is that there's a big turn in the middle of the film. How did you pull the audience through that? I felt like I knew where I was, where I was going, but I could see that you could get lost. The thing you bring up is really interesting because there's a big reset that happens almost halfway through the movie where things that you've understood to be one way were not actually that at all. Yep, this is exactly what I'm talking about. It messes with a lot of things at the exact same time. At this one moment of the movie, there's this kind of big reset, and it changes time. It changes all kinds of things. If you read the script, you go, wait, what? And when we put the movie together, we are always aware that this was going to be a potential problem area. We hoped that there wouldn't be any issues at all. But I mean, we're asking the audience to deal with a lot all at one time. Sure enough, when we screen the movie, when we're doing our initial friends and family screenings, the majority of the audience was no issue whatsoever, and it worked the way that it was supposed to. But for some portion of the audience, it was confusing for them. Not confusing forever, but we really dug down deep when we talked to people who were confused by it to find out where it made sense to them. And it was longer than we found tolerable because the problem with having an audience confused for too long is that they're disengaged from the movie and they're thinking, I don't understand what's going on and you're not paying attention to the movie anymore. You're just trying to figure it out. The other thing too is that what you always want to do, and I think something that Ryan is particularly good at in his movies, is you want to feel like you're in good hands. So you want to feel like, I don't know exactly what just happened, but I'm sure it's all going to work out. But we felt that it was maybe a little bit too much, right? That some portion of the audience, they were confused enough. So we had to embark on a series of changes in that sequence. None of the monumental on the surface, but definitely significant items. And then a couple of small items that we did to correct the situation. We got ourselves to a point where the sequence was not a problem any longer for a portion of the audience. They were getting on board where we hoped that they would get on board. And that's one of the challenges in cutting a movie is when you encounter something like this, you have to identify the problem. Why exactly is the audience getting confused here? And then hopefully come up with a solution to solve it. And I think we did. This thing that happens in the movie is one of the great features of the film, actually. It's extremely delightful and just a great deal of fun. What were your solutions? I know you don't want to give spoilers, but was it ADR? It was music. It was ADR. It was rhyming it visually with, with the beginning of the film so that the hope was that the audience would understand we are doing something big. We are resetting things. And it, it seemed to work like gangbusters. The film starts with a door knocking. Is that it? Is that it the rhyming? A door knocking coming out of black. Having that happen later, that helped the audience. You can't know exactly the amount of impact each of these things had, but each of these things had enough impact to solve the problem. It's a huge cast, a it, lot yeah, of big stars. Yeah. Talk about keeping that many characters and storylines alive, or is that just a function of the script? 
it's actually one of the most exciting things about doing ensemble movies. And this was true of Knives Out and to a similar extent in Glass Onion. It's absolutely wonderful. The cast is incredible from tops to tails. They're all perfectly cast and a great deal of fun. But the trick with an ensemble movie is you want to make sure that everything stays in balance. You have to make sure that everyone is being given their due. It's sort of like you're making a nice meal. The cast is giving you all these incredible ingredients. You know, it's all just so delicious. And you have to find a way to combine them all so that, you know, you could taste all the flavors. There's not something that's too much or too little. Within that, if some characters are more important than others in a particular scene, a scene might be more from this character's point of view. And you have to serve all of that. You have to pay attention to that. And I think the discipline that's required is the ability to say we are going to take out this thing that's great and that's working and that the audience laughs at and we're going to take it out in service of the movie as a whole because it makes the balance of the scene wrong. There's a mm-hmm. scene called, that we call the dis- disruptor scene. The entire cast is together outside of a mm-hmm. pool house and it's probably seven, eight pages in the script and it's a fairly involved long sequence. And there were a number of things in that scene that were complete home runs that were huge laughs and really fun and things that we really loved and we cut them out because it was pushing the scene into this person's point of view, taking the focus off of this person. And it's really hard to cut good things. It happens anytime you're dealing with an ensemble cast and you have a lot of characters together at the same time. You just have to be cognizant of making sure that you keep everything and balance. There are some flashbacks later in the movie that reveal clues in scenes that we've already seen once. So you see a scene, then later on we're flashing back to the scene, we're seeing it in a different way. When they shot that, did they slate that stuff where you knew it was for the flashback? There are some shots that are specific to telling a different point of view. And even sometimes where you might see something that you didn't see before because you're now in a different position. Absolutely, there's specific photography for that. Because again, the screenplay is like this really like intricate Swiss watch especially when it comes to structure. But at the same time, that's not true across the board because there are still many, many choices that need to be made and material does get reused in the movie. And there are a lot of choices that have to be made because those things aren't specifically designed, like where you come back into a scene now that you're looking at it from another point of view, where you end the scene what material you have in the scene. It's a requirement of the screenplay in a movie like this to solve a lot of the major structural issues. It isn't so simple that it's all just figured out. So yes, there's footage. I don't know. Say there's a scene 17 and then when it's reprised, it's scene 85. There's going to be slates for 17 and 85, both in that scene. Then, of course, even though something might be designed, maybe using something from the original scene works better. So it becomes this issue. You really just have to work your way through it and see what works best. It is interesting that if you've seen the scene once, then the second time you see it, not only are you showing maybe a different perspective, but you don't have to show the whole thing. Correct. The idea is the audience is delighted to do it again. If you make it drudgery for the audience, then obviously it's not going to work. You have to give them what they need. And it's interesting. Sometimes they need more than you think, and sometimes they need a lot less. And it's a big part of editing any movie, particularly when something has involved structure like this murder mystery, it becomes even more of a challenge. A lot of the success of these kind of films is misdirection. Whilst you want to kind of mislead the audience, but you also have to show them the clues they need to be satisfied. Can you speak to what you do in editorial to help misdirect? Absolutely, because you'll set characters up, but you want to make sure if you've got some delicious reaction that looks suspicious, you want to place it in just the right spot so that, you know, that the audience is noting that part of what you're trying to do the whole way through is misdirect and hide. You're trying to do both with the audience. 
And certainly part of the genre, and it's really fun, but some of the suspicious close-ups are surprisingly effective. Then you start second-guessing it, which is great too, because then you start thinking, oh, maybe that's not really what they're reacting to, and I'm being led down the wrong path, which actually brings up a good point. Something we put enormous effort into, it was way more of a thing in this movie than it was in Knives Out, is being completely honest with the audience, or at least as much as we possibly could be, putting many clues in plain sight. If somebody were to watch the movie a second time, if we were lucky enough for people to want to do that, you don't want them to feel like they were screwed over and lied to. You want them to be delighted by the fact that they missed something that was just there. And so we really got into pushing the envelope on those things. And it's really quite extraordinary. You can't talk about any of them here because we're trying to be spoiler free, but there are really some extraordinary things that are just there in plain sight. And you just don't know to look for them. And I don't mean that it's something hidden in the background. I mean, right out in the front and you just don't know to look for them, but there's some doozies in there. I really love it. And I think if you do watch the movie again, you'll see that, that we've really played it straight. Let me ask you about something not related to the movie. I was perusing your IMDb page, and you have edited long enough that you had to have cut on film. I did. I cut movies on film, and I cut on the original nonlinear editing system, the Moviola. Early on, I was like, there has to be a better way of doing this. <laughs> there just has to be. And so I was really interested in the early nonlinear editing systems. I did two low-budget movies on this Lucasfilm system called Edit Droid. It was yeah. a laser-based system. It had an extraordinary interface. It used a Sun Microsystems computer, which was an incredibly powerful computer, and the operating systems Unix, and you could network multiple systems together. I cut a thing on montage, and a buddy of mine, James Brewer, he was an assistant at the time on LA Law, and he called me up and he said, hey, you got to come over here and check this thing out. It's called an Abbott. And I went over there and I looked at that thing and I was like, this is it. This is what I have to use. So I wanted to get out of film as quickly as I possibly could. But I'm glad that I've been at it long enough to actually go through it because it's beautiful, meaning there's something about the smell. You use grease pencils and you cut the actual physical work picture and you splice it together. There's something really wonderful about it. I think the first movie I cut on Avid was like in 1991. So I've been using Avid a really long time and I'm grateful to be able to use this system because there's just so many things that it allows that you can never do on film. I'm really soundtrack intensive. I cut in 5.1 and we do all kinds of stuff with the soundtrack and obviously people know all the stuff you can temp in visual effects, all these things that you couldn't possibly do. So when you get the film together, there's a flatbed editing system called Chem and you could maybe have two sound heads. They used to have these things called juniors. You could connect a wire between the two of them so you could have multiple chems running. So maybe you could put up a soundtrack or two. It wasn't like there's any automation or any mixing. So you'd have to like live mix it, but that's all you could do. The soundtrack was basically a single track of dialogue. And if you had overlap, you just cut them off and the overlaps had to be sent out to a transfer place to actually make. I mean, it's insane. I don't think movies are made one bit better by cutting electronically. Not one bit. If you think about all of the great films that were made that were edited on film and some of the great achievements, a movie like Apocalypse Now or Top Gun or The Fugitive, these massive, endlessly complex films, I'm glad I got to experience it because I know everything about it, but I'm also glad that we don't work that way anymore. You're the second person, I think, in a week or two that has mentioned knowing somebody on L.A. Law that was cutting on an Avid. I don't even know what to say about that. Maybe L.A. Law was at the forefront. I don't really know. That's uh, sort of funny. I've got to find out a little bit about the history of this because you mentioned The Fugitive, and the first Avid I cut on was an Avid that they used on The Fugitive. But I've heard multiple people say that 
the fugitive is not cut on avid. It must be a, a combination. Very well could be. And maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but I, I always think of that movie because I know what a complex post-production that yeah. movie was and how it all turned out so well. And so I always think, oh, that's that's another example of something that's just like much easier on avid. Let me show you something for a second. I know you got to go in a minute, but hold on. I've actually got the continuity for The Fugitive. Look at that. I love everything about that. And that's 1993. So, I mean, certainly that's the era where things are starting to happen. Exactly. I think that you're right in that it must have been a some kind of a combination of two different styles. The final question for you, was there any specific scene that was either something you were really proud of or that was a challenge for you? I would say that I'm really proud of the whole movie because I love the movie. To be able to work on a film that I personally find so delightful and fun to watch. Maybe proud is not even the right word. Maybe honored to get to work on it because I just think it's a lovely movie that's fun and it was amazing to be a part of it. I had to like pick a sequence that I enjoy doing the most is when Blanc lays out the crime. Because first of all, Daniel's interpretation of that character, of Benoit Blanc, is absolutely hilarious. And he's such a powerhouse actor. And it was so much fun because it has flashbacks, which your cinema does so well. On a 24th of a second, you've now gone back a week, a month, centuries. And it has the whole crazy cast of characters there. It's just so much fun to put together because it's what the audience has been waiting for. And it's what I'm personally waiting for when I see a movie like this. It's Blanc at his Blanciest. <laughs> <laughs> He's got to enjoy that character after years of Bond and other things like that. I just think it's amazing that he's become this other great, iconic character. I mean, he's just so talented and the character's so much fun and that accent is just the best. <laughs> Are we going to see another Benoit Blanc movie? Absolutely. It is guaranteed you will see at least one more because Ryan is in process now of figuring out the next story. So I can guarantee you'll see one more. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Bob. It's been really fascinating finding out about this movie and your post process. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. It was really fun talking to you. That's it for Out of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com slash artofthecut, all one word, or borisfx.com slash AOTC, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a Topic-Driven Curated Look at the Craft of Editing. Thanks to Bob Desay, ACE. Thanks to Nathan Blakely for editing today's podcast. And thanks to our partner, Boris FX, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com slash cut. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening. And please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that to get more great Art of the Cut interviews every week, please subscribe right here on your favorite podcast app.